Hi guys, welcome back to Stargirl. It's Emma. Today is Thursday, February 1st, 2024. Um, good morning, guys. <laughs> what is the vibe for February? I think it's like, don't stop now. Um, and I'm saying this to myself and to us all as a community bond, keep doing what you're doing. Whatever those 2024 intentions are, keep going. It's not corny. It's not lame. It's not a waste of time. Little steps compound and yeah. And don't let anybody knock you off course. That's another thing. Okay. But um, speaking of new big things are coming for Stargirl. So think body keeps the score. Think cut the noise. Think gut check. Think... Think classes in session. Um, so I'll be announcing this on my Instagram first. So make sure you follow me there. And also make sure you follow Stargirl on Spotify or wherever you listen. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Let's go. So today we're going to be talking about Willa Cather with our lovely guest, Sam Cummins of our beloved Nymphed alumni. Um, and for those who don't know, Willa Cather is a great American novelist. Actually, she had a brief stint as a critic journalist as well. She actually got her start in women's magazines, but she's best known for her prairie novels. Um, so she was born in 1873, and the majority of her novels were written in the 1910s and 20s. She wrote 12 novels altogether, the last one of which was published in 1940. So I guess she's best known for what's called her prairie trilogy. So these are O Pioneers, Song of the Lark, and My Antonia. Um, my Antonia is my favorite of, of the ones that I've read. Um, Willa Cather in her time was very commercially popular and she actually won the Pulitzer Prize in 1923 for her book One of Ours which takes place partially on the Great Plains and then partially in France um, set in World War One. Anyways despite this popularity Willa Cather was or she received a ton of criticism in her life for a couple of reasons. Number one, because she writes very classically, both in narrative structure and the prose itself. So as opposed to the great modernist writers of her era at the most popular level, like Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, even James Joyce, um, Willa Cather's not an experimentalist, I guess. Um, so kind of relatedly, she wrote quite simple stories, um, stories of life and death, of family life. Most of her novels set on the plains are just talking about like Eastern European immigrant communities working on the farm in Nebraska, where she spent most of her childhood. So if we compare that to the novels of the writers that I just mentioned, who are much more concerned with city life, economics, and modernization, and writing these big satires of social life and the excess that came along with that like Willa Cather is not interested in in that side of things at all um so a lot of people felt that she was like unable to grapple with the modern world and the particular economics and inequalities of it there's this quote that I love by Joan Acicello where she writes that Willa Cather saw the world as a series of quote timeless tragic principles rather than like a symptom of you know, the here and now economics. So that really frustrated a lot of critics because they're like, she's very out of touch. <laughs> um, and Will Cather was also a conservative. Um, so therefore, various liberal groups took issue with her. And Joan Acachella actually thinks that mostly this was because 
they could have used her on their side because she was so commercially popular. Um, but yeah, so like the Marxists took issue with her, the modernists, as we already said. Um, and then later in retrospect, like the feminists, particularly within the academy, took a lot of issue with her. And actually, before we get going, I want to formally introduce this slim volume that uh, I had Sam read that I love very much by Joan Acachella because this book really influenced my thinking not only about Willa Cather but also just about the nature of a lot of literary criticism. Um, I read this several years ago in graduate school when I was way less figured out about what I thought about things, particularly the landscape of literary criticism, and this book brought me a lot of clarity. And incidentally, Joan Acachella actually passed away the day after Sam and I recorded this episode. Um, so that was a crazy synchronicity that actually, as we'll become clear once you hear Sam and I talk, felt very Cather-esque. Um, and what was I going to say? Oh, anyway, so this book is called Willa Cather and the Politics of Criticism. It came out in 2000, but it was born out of an essay that was published in The New Yorker in 1995. Um, the thesis is essentially that like both critics and the Academy have misused Cather to further their own political ends and have therefore completely missed the point <laughs> and really missed the opportunity to like celebrate and mine Cather's literary achievements. So she writes, and this is a quote, the great shame of the left-wing attack on Cather in the 30s is not just that it removed her from serious consideration by some of the best minds, but that it polarized the discussion of her work. The more she was senselessly dismissed by the left, the more she was senselessly exalted by the right and used as a stick to beat the left. So this sentiment captures a lot of what we talk about with a lot of the star girls, honestly, like if we think about Ballerina Farm, if we think about Dasha, <laughs> okay, that's random, but um, if we think about like who the freak, if we think about Lena Dunham, I mean, not so much now, she's obviously in intense, being intensely celebrated now, um, if we think about Lana Del Rey, if we think about... Well, I definitely used Emily Ratajkowski as a political tool when I was like mad at her five years ago, which is insane now because I literally love her now, but I guess I just had to talk my shit um, right then and there. Um, who else? I mean, I feel like Gia uses herself as a political tool to like, oh, she's taking herself out of the ring by doing that. You know, it's like, why just stay doing the vibes? Okay, well, I think we get the picture. Anyways, Joanna Coachella, she's the GOAT. We love her. Rest in peace. Thank you for all that you did. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh, well, you know, Sam and I didn't really get to uh, concretely defining Willa Cather's dream and threat. So um, some ideas I have, and I'd be curious what you all think. Um, the dreams I think she represents is like, self-determination um, because she plucked herself from obscurity in Nebraska and just like made this incredible literary career for herself. Um, but I also think the self-determination dream is like related to the threat of her conservative belief system, right? Um, because as I just said, she wasn't interested in you know, dismantling systems, theoretically or otherwise. She was just, like, staying in her lane, doing her thing. Um, I also think the dream of her is just, like, her ability to capture beauty. Um, for those of you that have read her prose, you'll know how painterly it is. Um, she's 
really a master at description of landscape, of the material world. And, you know, her writing is not like intensely psychological, I guess, but in terms of capturing the physical world and illuminating the beauty in it, um, I think we bow to her. Um, Some threats uh i mean obviously just her popularity right the fact that she was just like a bestseller um and she was also just someone who was not going to bend to the wills of the intellectual elite um in the mary mccarthy episode katie royfe talked about this with mary mccarthy as well but even that like mary mccarthy was so much more like politically engaged and so I love her writing because she is like so intensely interior and she's making her case from the inside out, from mining her own instincts and cowardice and almost spoofing her own politics in that way. So that's a little bit different. But Willa Cather was literally just like, I'm never going to say what you want me to say. Um, so although she wasn't even that explicit about that, because she just never said what anyone wanted her to say. Um, okay. I think that gives you enough of a preview about Willa Cather, and I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with Sam. Oh, um, last quick things. Just want to call out a number of Stargirl-related vibe things that have happened in the last little bit. Um, No analysis, but let's just commit them to record. Okay. Alex Earl is taking dance class. We love that. Emily Ratajkowski for Alani New. Yes. Lana for Skims. Tinks is DJing, which we just have to stand. Um, Sydney went on Hot Ones. Nicki Minaj is flipping the mother freak out. Um, Let's see. Oh, not related to pop culture, but did we all see the weightlifting essay in Harper's a couple weeks ago by Mr. Jordan Castro? Everyone go read that. I'll, I'll link it, but everyone make sure you read that and just get your mind right. Maybe I'll end on the most famous image from Willa Cather's work. It's probably formally considered a huge cliche, but this is of the image of a plow in the setting sun. This is from my Antonia. Um, I'll read you the whole thing. Presently, we saw a curious thing. There were no clouds. The sun was going down in a limpid, gold-washed sky. Just as the lower edge of the red disc rested on the high fields against the horizon, a great black figure suddenly appeared on the face of the sun. We sprang to our feet, straining our eyes toward it. In a moment, we realized what it was. On some upland farm, a plow had been left standing in the field. The sun was sinking just behind it. Magnified across the distance by the horizontal light, it stood out against the sun, was exactly contained within the circle of the disc, the handles, the tongue, the share, black against the molten red. There it was, heroic in size, a picture writing on the sun. Even while we whispered about it, our vision disappeared. The ball dropped and dropped until the red tip went beneath the earth. The fields below us were dark, the sky was growing pale, and that forgotten plow had sunk back to its own littleness somewhere on the prairie. All right. Let's go. Hi guys, welcome back to Stargirl, it's Emma. Today is Saturday, January 6th, 2023. Um, And we are here with Miss Sam Cummins. Hi, I'm so (laughs) excited to be here on Stargirl. I'm like so pumped. I love this podcast so much. I've listened to every episode, so. Oh my gosh, 
Oh, yeah. thank you, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm obviously, like, waxing on about you guys all the time as well, so... Um, so we have a really awesome and kind of diversion topic today. We're going to talk about Willa Cather. We haven't done a historical subject on Stargirl for almost a year now. And incidentally, the last one we did was Mary McCarthy, who was a contemporary and critic of Willa Cather. So yeah, Sam, do you have anything up top you want to acknowledge about her? Um... I'm just a huge fan of hers. Mm-hmm. I think she's somebody that deserves like a revival, especially amongst contemporary readers. She's kind of odd. She definitely doesn't write for the general audience of the modern day, but I think that there's morsels of lessons that we can take from her and she can really situate us in terms of our like historical lineage, ideological lineage too. Yeah, Sam and I were just talking before this about how, as we'll get into, one of the criticisms of Cather in her time was that she was kind of out of step with contemporary issues. And um, as it happens, a hundred years later, those are kind of the same quote unquote contemporary issues (laughs) and themes. So there's a timelessness to her that it makes me feel very connected to something greater, I think is what you were alluding to as well, of this timeless passing of the same stories and tensions that we can tap into. Yeah, she's very not situated in time. There is infinite constants in her work. That's probably like a huge theme that can be both terrifying Mm -hmm. and beautiful. And I think that is why people sometimes misinterpret a lot of her imagery as like very flowery and... Mm -hmm. I think you you said rosy and nostalgic, which I thought was a really good way of describing it. But I think there's like an underlying kind of terror of like the eternal that Mm. also is present in her work. And I think is like kind of um, ego soothing. Yeah. The sense of vastness that is, as you said, like unknowable and terrifying and also beautiful and kind of exalted is cool. Yeah, Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I think that's why people have a hard time with her is because, you know, these are things that you cannot put into words and that's something that she really tried to forefront in her work and said oftentimes of her work is that she was kind of speaking the unspeakable Mm. and trying to communicate something that she couldn't possibly communicate with words. Okay, cool. Maybe let's just, for those who are maybe unfamiliar, like who is Willa Cather? What did she write about? When did she write? That kind of stuff. Okay. Well, so Willa Cather was born in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, in Virginia, actually, which is a very different landscape from the prairies of her literature. She lived in Virginia until the age of nine and very importantly moved to Nebraska, which was sort of seen as a displacement that we'll probably talk about more later in the episode. Um, and she had a lot of brothers and sisters. She moved to Red Cloud, Nebraska. It seems like most of her prairie literature is one way or another about Red Cloud. A lot of the characters are based on real people. You can go and visit their graves Mm -hmm. in Red Cloud, which is now kind of like a tourist town dedicated to Cather. And growing up, she seemed to spend a lot of time reading a lot of the old classics. She learned Latin and Greek. Her grandmother taught her Latin and Greek before she was of schooling age. She spent a lot of time with townspeople who were not farmers. Oftentimes they were laborers, paupers, you know, and she spent a lot of time kind of like telling stories with them. And yeah, I feel like it's important that at least in the way that she's remembered and like criticism of her is that she was kind of like a star genius child from an early age. So you mentioned her learning Latin and um, 
developing this rich inner world. You know, the research that has been done about her childhood and adolescence shows that she had this great sense of destiny within herself and her teachers noticed her. Like she had this crazy ambition that was kind of coming out of nowhere given that she lived in a town of, as you said, you know, farmers and laborers. And I mean, this is kind of silly to hit home, but the fact that she was a girl with all of this great ambition and to be a writer specifically was very rare at this time. Yeah, and I think she also, she spent a lot of time with, like, a surgeon in town and would, like, amputate limbs, and that was, like, her (laughs) dream was to, like, perform surgeries and be a doctor, and it's, like, very gruesome, (laughs) you know? Yeah, she had this insane appetite for skills and knowledge of all stripes. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was, like dang girl like you're really out here like doing (laughs) surgery at age seven or something I don't know like it was very odd but she seemed to really enjoy it and masculine Mm. enterprises really fascinated her and have always fascinated her throughout her life but especially like in her adolescent years Mm -hmm. um do you want to talk about the William Cather period did you learn? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I love the William Cather period. I thought that was really funny and weird. Um, I think at some point in her adolescence, she shaved her head or gave herself a crew cut and started wearing trousers and demanded that everybody call her William Cather or Willie. And he, this continued up until, I think, the age 18, 19. But even while she was in college, she was called Willie by a lot of her male compatriots, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, like, for future literary critics, this is read in a variety of ways, um, you know, about her ideas of gender. But it seemed like something that she embodied because she felt uncomfortable with, like, the feminine spirit. She felt like it was maybe trite. Um, she seemed to be pretty... Uh, suspicious of women in general, critical of women writers and women artists, um, and really rejected her own femininity and kind of adopted this like masculine persona, which is funny. Yeah, as Sam was saying, that was like has been intensely read into by future critics and the feminist movement when they're kind of don't know what to do with her, don't know how to square her. So the solution was like to read all this, if not literally gender dysphoria like this deep anxiety about femininity that Mm -hmm. turned her toward potentially more conservative gender politics or whatever you know rather than kind of just letting that be a phase of teenage angst or something you know yeah she maintained a masculine spirit I think this is her whole life you know like I think so much about like what her psychology specifically like she she seemed like a very controlling person she really mm-hmm. controlled her own image we'll probably get into that later uh controlled a lot of you know her own impulses and i feel like that comes from a really masculine place even mm. though her work is so much about like the balance of like trying to fight against nature and then also renouncing yourself to nature which i feel like is a very feminine impulse mm-hmm. she herself seemed quite neurotic quite controlling um And to me, that's very masculine, Um, but that might just be me. I don't know. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. (laughs) Um, Sorry, y'all. We had a moment of technological issues, but we're returning. Um, Yes. Yes. We were starting to talk about Willa Cather's William Cather period, this moment in her adolescence where she cut her hair, started dressing like a boy, demanded to be called William or Willie, um, and how that was has been intensely read into by by critics. 
Yeah. She had her gender bending moment. It's not it's not easy to classify her as trans. It seemed like it was like a phase of cross-dressing or something, which I think is really cool and weird of her. Um, <laughs> also, just her feeling so dissatisfied with like the options available to her as a woman. At least that's how mm-hmm. I read it, where she's like, okay, I have all this ambition. I'm obviously very smart and getting attention for being very smart by my the adults in my life. Like, how can I maximize my opportunities basically yeah exactly yeah yeah she rejected femininity to her core um and i don't know if we caught that part in the technological hellhole that sucked away (laughs) our great ideas (laughs) but it seemed like her impulse of like masculinity to me stemmed a lot from like an impulse of control that she exerted over her entire life and is oddly not present in her literature which we'll get into later Mm -hmm. um yeah, and then we were also just mentioning that, I guess, officially, Willa Cather is now classified as a lesbian, that mm-hmm. you know she had several close one-on-one female relationships in her life. She lived with multiple women, and she's like, you were saying they listed as like her life partner now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when you Google her, it says life partner, and it's a woman. I forget mm-hmm. who it was. It was someone at the end of her life. I know that she had a lifelong love, Isabel, mm-hmm. but it wasn't Isabel. It was, um, let me see. Edith Lewis. And the issue is that that was brought up in a book that Emma recommended by Joan Acuchella is that Willa, in her will, made it so that any writing that she did not explicitly publish was not to be accessed by scholars until the copyright expired on her books. And after the copyright expired, you have to basically go to where all of those letters and correspondences that she had are stored and sign them out and you cannot quote them directly. Mm-hmm. And so all of this biographical information that, that we have of her is all just paraphrased from her own correspondences and diaries. And it's subject to a lot of interpretation. And so some critics argue that her interpretation as a lesbian comes from the lack of public view of her personal mm-hmm. life, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that that in and of itself is so wild and cool that like unless we are researching her ourselves, we will yeah. never get a direct quote from her internal world writings. Her private world and you know and she had a lot of trouble with her human relationships it seemed and her having such a deep control over that is really interesting. It seems like she really thwarted interpretation willingly her whole life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She never, she was like a really like born contrarian. Totally. Never ever wanted to um, kind of fit into or just be interpreted by the world, I think. so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think she was like a real proper eccentric and like mm-hmm. weirdo artist, you know, like, I mean, I don't think we've said this yet, but though the majority of her novels take place in Nebraska on the prairie, she lived the majority of her adult life in New York City. And so she was like a contemporary in Greenwich Village in the 20s and 30s with all those folks. But she was a total recluse and just Mm -hmm. weirdo chick. Like she was not in it for the scene at all. (laughs) Yeah. She hated young people because importantly, she published her first book. And this is so crazy to me. It is bananas. Like she published her first book at age 38 which I think is awesome because I, on my own podcast, have oftentimes praised the idea of being 40. I think 40 is just like the coolest thing. I think it's the coolest thing a person can do is turn 40. And <laughs> Willa Cather did that and she did it in a really cool way and started her career at basically 40. And yeah, in the 1910s. That's yeah. a very different 40. Like I know. Yeah. yeah. 
she just refused to be kind of like absorbed into modernity, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and she even wrote this book called Not Under 40. And it was supposedly meant to be barred from anyone under 40 reading it. Like she did not want people under 40 in her life. She's like, no, like it's crazy. I, I understand her. I want to be that way when I'm 40. Yeah. Like, I don't know. yeah. Um, okay. So I think it's going to be useful to like talk about just like the main pillars of like criticism attached to her. Mm-hmm. But maybe before we do that, let's just like, ground a little bit more so like what does she write about what are her Mm -hmm. novels about what's the setting and the vibe there um I mean obviously the setting oftentimes is the prairie which I think the prairie itself the actual physical landscape of it is the strongest most constant character in all of her work Mm -hmm. I think in most of the books I've read even when she's describing things that are not the prairie she's describing it like the prairie the undulating grass the vastness this is something that swallows you entirely and very importantly like in the beginning of my antonia um the main character arrives in nebraska and his identity is totally cleansed he's an orphan um he's starting a new life in this like vast landscape and it's a means for you to kind of like embrace and carve an identity for yourself out of like a thorny blankness. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really important. So the prairie is the setting most mm-hmm. of the time. She has other books that are set in different places, like uh, the death of the Arch- archbishop is set in the American Southwest, and one of ours mm-hmm. is set partially in France yeah, during World yeah. War World yeah. War One. And I think her first book was set in Boston, weirdly. And it was kind of something that she hated because she wrote one of those books where it's just like rich people talking and being bored and like like one of those like Eric Romer type things. I'm assuming I didn't read it, but um, she hated that because it's not what she knew. And she had a mentor who told her to write what she knew. And so she started writing about Red Cloud, Nebraska. And that's how she wrote Oh Pioneers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think she's just obsessed with this like landscape that's totally consuming and identity cleansing, you know, a place Mm -hmm. where your smallness and vulnerability is undeniable. And Mm -hmm. she feared this. Like she, in a later letter, she wrote, I have this quote here. She wrote, you cannot understand. You have not seen those miles of field. There is no place to hide in Nebraska. You can't hide under a windmill. So you can't hide from anything there. You know, you can't hide from yourself. You can't hide from God, from Mm -hmm. the prying eyes of your neighbors. And I think that she was just really obsessed with that because she hid so much in her life. You know, whether or not she hid under the persona of William Cather, I personally think that she did. And she hid from the public view. She was a recluse. She hid from posterity by locking up her letters and preventing the public from seeing them. And I think that was like to her detriment. It's kind of a Mm -hmm. cautionary tale against controlling your own image because in, in posterity, the general public seems to interpret her work in the way that I think she would have wanted. And literary critics who have access to those private letters tend to really have trouble categorizing her. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to have faith in posterity, I think is what she's teaching us. You know, posterity treats us kindly most of the Mm. time because if you're like an object of history, people think of you as this like curious, like exotic thing and Mm. you're automatically going to be interesting and eccentric, you know? So, Yeah, certainly I agree that she was very private and I guess that stems from her being so controlling but Mm -hmm. she was also like I don't know if that worked 
because she was so mm-hmm. relentlessly projected upon by mm-hmm. the left and the right, as we'll talk about. Like, you know, like the main thesis of that Joan Acachella book that we read is basically like all sides of the political spectrum have unfortunately mainly used Willa Cather as a political tool rather than just appreciating her as a masterful stylist. And mm-hmm. so something about her, and I guess this is kind of getting into the like the Stargirl ideology is like really triggers a response that like she she's like an automatic metaphor for whatever you want to see her as, which is um that that is a timeless form in and of itself. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like this it's true. Yeah. The prairie, like the blankness Mm -hmm. of the prairie and how that's such a presence in her work. You know, I feel like maybe people are projecting onto her because that's like what it's meant to do. It's meant to kind of like operate within your own Mm -hmm. psyche and like draw out like all of these bizarre impulses that you hold within yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think people are just getting really caught up in like the reflective quality of the landscape that she describes and not so much the actual work that she's doing, you know? Mm. Yeah, well, maybe let's just go head on into, like, the main criticisms of her. We had made that list. So I guess we've already talked about the most general one was that she she was, like, archaic and, like, not in touch with the modern era. So, right, she's writing in, like, 1910s to 1930s, give or take. And um, people, we already mentioned Ernest Hemingway, Edmund Wilson, host of other prominent critics at the time, writers and critics, think that she just is out of touch, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think a, a huge part of that out of touchness is about her kind of refusal to address or explore class politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously this was a time when, like, Marxism was very in vogue among the, like, cultural elites. Um, and I'll read this this quote from Joan Acachello. She's saying this of the Edmund Wilson and cohort critics. She says, to them, Cather was already marked as old-fashioned by her prairie novels. As for her newer tragic novels, they too looked old-fashioned to the younger critics. What these people wanted were novels that would mirror their post-war disillusionment, the way The Great Gatsby and The Sun Also Rises did. They wanted experimentalism, subjectivity, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf. And they wouldn't have minded something about the city, about cars and gin and Meanwhile, Cather went on giving them stories about noble-minded people living in small towns, often in the past. She did not examine her character's stream of consciousness or, for the most part, their sex lives. She examined their ideals, which she took seriously, and she wrote about them in prose that looked decidedly non-experimental, pure, classical, like something carved from white marble. That's a really beautiful quote. Um, It seemed like you know, there was a heavy amount of political and social turmoil around that time, which surprisingly, as I read more into this, really reflected a lot of the things that I've seen in our contemporary society, you know, people trying to kind of politicize things that are not necessarily meant to be, you know, Mm. and I think this is just like a constant problem within academia, right? Because, you know, you have to get your work published in the journal of like so-and-so, and you have to follow a school of thought, which I think a lot of Cather critics, like more than I expected, I, I wasn't aware that she was even this controversial, mm. um, but more more critics than I expected did kind of read her and like, even even like Acuchella, which I really appreciated her perspective, like kind of use her to further this idea of like mm. academia does not need to be a school of thought. It, it can be just a way to kind of read something complexly, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I found that really interesting. And you know, I don't think she's meant to be contemporary or anything. I don't even think she's archaic. Like, And the critics of her time, you know, in the mm-hmm. 1930s, people, yeah, like you said, Ernest Hemingway and these, like, great radicals of modern literature um, or modernist literature, I think they saw her as like, kind of like this weird old grandma, right? Which I feel like is interesting, especially given the fact that, like, 
the language of psychoanalysis was so popular at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I really do think, like, she was trying to unpack the American psyche in a way that's, like, you know, and kind of, like, the the great, like, forefathers of, you know, American mm-hmm. thought. And just because she didn't use the language of psychoanalysis doesn't mean it wasn't, like, a heavily psychological form of, of thought, you know? And yeah. Weirdly, like, a lot of her critics, like, they were farm people. Like, they came from far pe- farm people. They were not far removed from the farm in American history. And chronologically, like, the proximity was much closer. And mm-hmm. I don't understand. I, I mean, maybe it's just my pers- modern perspective, but I don't understand how they could see that as archaic when it is something that still very much was running through, you know, blood running through their veins at that time, you know? Totally. Yeah, I also think, like, if I didn't know the criticism that Cather wasn't engaged in class politics that would never have occurred to me because she's like she's writing about poor people whose world is falling apart before their eyes you know like Mm -hmm. of course it's not post-industrial in the sense that it doesn't take place like in a city or in a factory or something like that but it does feel very um concerned with money and upheaval um but it's just not so literal I guess yeah it's true. She, you know, her main character in O Pioneers is like a very economically minded, materially minded mm-hmm. character. She's very concerned with materialism, industrialism. That whole book is kind of spanning the age of industrialism and really seeing, like examining the lives of people who are struggling against like urbanization, fleeing the farm, coming back to the farm, dealing with all of those different things. And so I feel like she she just didn't use the language of these schools of thought, but she's very much Mm -hmm. talking about class throughout all of her books, you know? Um, Okay. Yeah. I want to know about your avenue into her and what spoke to you about her. Yeah. I think I first was assigned her in an an American literature class in college. And I was assigned a short story. I don't remember what it was, but I don't remember being very impressed by it. Mm. I think I found it quite boring. And I was in a bookstore one day and saw O Pioneers and picked it up and read it and really fell in love with the way that the book was written. It was something I'd never seen before. Even though I have read a lot of frontier literature, she is very unique to me and her spirit. Um, and I think I relate to her a lot, her story and the way that she describes landscape, I think is just, it, it expressed things that I had always felt since early childhood. I had spent a lot of time in the Southwest. I grew up by the ocean as well, which is a very different landscape from the plains, but I think not not at its core, you know, the way that mm-hmm. she describes her plains, the undulations of the, the grass and the undulations of the water of the ocean are very similar mm-hmm. in expanse. my opinion. And yeah, the vastness. And that's something I saw every day growing up. And I was also, I immigrated to the United States when I was seven I from Mexico. That. Yeah, I'm, I was born in Mexico and moved here in the like, Sonora Desert. Um, so I'm very much southwest on both sides of the Rio Grande River. My dad said he's a redneck in two languages. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that immigration, that displacement, I think, is something that like really influenced my thinking in a way that Cather also felt in mm-hmm. her displacement from Virginia because she became like obsessed with Nebraska and not Virginia, not where she came from. And mm-hmm. that's something that I feel like I kind of share is like, as soon as I got to Texas, I just became deeply obsessed with it and mm-hmm. deeply obsessed with the American Southwest and constantly neurotically, insanely like returning to the desert, um, like 
two, three times a year my entire life, you know, and I'm like addicted to that feeling of renouncing myself to the vastness of the landscape, mm. you know? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was oh, my... that's, that's so cool. I think you made a note in the doc about like, you know, there's, there's all this fuss about what canon do we fit Willa Cather into and why aren't we just looking at her as a nature writer, which I thought was a yeah. great point. Do you have more thoughts on that? Yeah. When I first encountered her, I really read her as though I was reading a nature writer. And I know that she's very concerned with people and, you know, their relationships with each other. But I feel like reading her as a nature writer would resolve a lot of the issues in her criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the landscape is the strongest character, like I said before. Um, and, you know, like I have this like really big obsession with the idea of like the American landscape is feminine. There's this book called The Lay of the Land that really is like one of my favorite books. It's like very like kind of Julia Kristeva of the Southwest type thing. Um, And it kind of goes into like the history of American letters and how, you know, the American land is like as a symbol within history has always been seen as like mother, punishing mother, you know, um, bountiful mother, and then eventually kind of like violated mother it's just like it's very like Mm -hmm. abstract and weird um but i feel like this is like one way that we could you know Coachella talks a lot about how feminist critics are pretty off base with willa cather but if we start reading her books as nature books i feel like they'd have an easier time like getting these more academic and kind of woohoo like literary journal publication Mm -hmm. kind of reads on on the narrative and the symbolism you know totally um like in in so many ways this is going to sound unrelated, but I promise it is. Like, yeah. I think Willa Cather read best requires you to like just level up and kind of like distance from the thing. Like, I think looking at it about like nature as opposed to about humans and relationships or like kind of spirituality and universe as opposed to religion. Like when you get mm-hmm. more abstract and like more kind of psychedelic about it, it all makes sense because like, what she's really talking about is like, or what she's expressing rather is a belief in harmony and systems and cycles. And so I think a lot of her contemporary critics got hung up on like, you know, you're misreading the now or you don't have a right to write about World War One. you weren't in the trenches, whatever, which we can talk about because that actually is insane <laughs> of her. But like there's, you know, but like she was really just telling stories that she felt were like universal and timeless, you know, and mm-hmm. set in places that she felt were beautiful. So I think it's mm-hmm. kind of a simpler and more artful. Like, I don't think she's trying to set out to do like social commentary. No, no, she... She really was obsessed with the internal world. And I think a lot of the human relationships that she speaks about are pretty fickle. And Mm. that's something that I think is the most terrifying thing about her work is um, the fickleness and kind of glibness with which she treats violence and tragedy as just some happenstance thing, you know, par for the course, you know, the land stays here, everybody goes, everybody leaves, but there's Mm -hmm. one thing that stays. And that can be really like scary and I think it really frightened her. Um, and apparently every time she went back to Nebraska, she would get panic attacks, which I can really mm. relate to. Like there is something really terrifying about really exposing yourself like that to the elements, you know, mm. it, it's cause you know, it's just difficult to comprehend like your smallness, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult to cope with that. And I think her weird, like special interest was <laughs> that, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's also like, okay. We mentioned the, 
nostalgic rosy tone that that's the gaze on everything and it's so funny that she writes so obsessively about Nebraska even though Mm -hmm. she fled it and as you said Mm -hmm. like had this really fraught relationship to it and obviously there's Mm -hmm. like a a tradition of writers leaving their homes and then obsessively writing about it which she fits Mm -hmm. into but you made a cool point in the doc of like nostalgia for something that you didn't actually experience being Mm -hmm. a kind of conservative fixation or something yeah yeah that's I I think true conservatism really traditional conservatism which Willa would have been because she was quite conservative Mm -hmm. anti-FDR unsurprisingly to me you know um, especially given her age and her environment but I think true conservatism is literally just like the conservation of the past and the past can always serve as like the perfect refuge for Mm -hmm. you, you know, because it's something that exists in your head. You can never go back to that, you know, and um, you can alter it as much as you want to fit something that brings comfort to you. And most of the time, the way that the past has occurred didn't ever actually happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just think that that, you know, valorizing the past, you know, for better or for worse is I think a really true conservative impulse. And I think it's necessary is really necessary that we have people that like really want to conserve the past and conserve those memories and alter them even, you know, I think that that's like what makes the human experience beautiful and what it helps us kind of like understand our larger narratives to put them in a linear timeline. But yeah, I think that that's something that she, she was kind of a victim of, like, I think she really had this defensive retreat which I think the West is very much that. Like, I think everybody who mm-hmm. came to the West came in a way that was a retreat from civilization and a way to kind of like erase your own identity, much like how she talks about in um, My Antonia when, you know, mm-hmm. she introduces us to this character by throwing him in this blankness and having him like not even understand language or his own name or, or where he comes from and not mm-hmm. even be sad about it, just feel nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um And I think that that's how a lot of people felt whenever they came into the West for the first time. Um, And then as we find out later, you know, you can never escape where you come from. And she really writes about this a lot, too, with when it comes to, you know, like the different immigrant Mm -hmm. communities in Nebraska, like the Bohemians and, you know, their strange magic and, you know, Mm -hmm. barefoot hermits like living in hills Mm -hmm. and being vegetarians and like not killing birds because they're magical birds and like it's bad luck, you know, Um, so I think like, you know, the the past abstracted and mm-hmm. turned into this magical thing is something that she does kind of like confront in her work. I don't know. Totally. No, I think like it, it took me a while to think of it that way about like her as this almost like mystic or something. But mm-hmm. I really like that. It, it makes me excited when I think of her as such. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, I have this quote that I just read this morning. This is like a crazy book, if you ever get your hands on it. It's called The Kingdom of Art, and it's a collection of, yeah, you may know this, of Willa Cather's um, newspaper writings and reviews before she moved to New York and became a novelist. And Mm -hmm. um, it's collected by, what's this woman's name? And this came out in the 60s. It's like... Oh, wow. Okay, it's crazy. This woman, Bernice Sloat, wrote this. Okay, I want to read you this quote. Um, Okay. About theories of art or ideas of culture, she was not particularly fashionable. She was on the side of permanence. There was an insistence on the shine of things, the reality of the good and the hopeful, and the necessity of delight. So I just love that insistence on the shine of things. Like, I think that's such a 
beautiful way to read her and just infuse it with more magic and kind of like mercy, you know, in the face of powers that are unknowable or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the shine of things is really a good way of putting it because she's often said she, that she has the best descriptive and realistic writing, but I don't think she's a realist at all. Like she is very mystical. Like mm-hmm. she's speaking about the most boring possible subjects in the world, which is like living on a farm in Nebraska in like, the 19th century. Like, that is like, I cannot, I would never, you cannot pay me to do that. Like I would not do that. But she makes it sound so magical. I feel like I'm in heaven when I'm reading her work. Totally. Sometimes I feel like I'm in hell. It's like so terrifying. Like it really like touches something that like causes like a real sense of panic in me in a weird way. Like it's very mm-hmm. like confrontational to something Yeah. deeper, I think, you know? I want to go back to the the like war writing for a second because yeah. I feel like that's another random piece of the puzzle. <laughs> Did yeah. you have thoughts about it? I mean, I can understand the criticism. So for context, she wrote a book called One of Ours um, based on her cousin, apparently, mm-hmm. who did go to World War One and die on the front lines. She read all mm-hmm. of his letters and based this character off of him, which is another Red Cloud Nebraska character, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And people are really pissed off at her, especially Ernest Hemingway, because he was like, you were not fighting. Like, you were not there. You didn't see the bloodshed. Like, it it was very, like, male, like, do not, like, appropriate male culture moment, you know, which I can kind of understand. (laughs) Well, it's also, like, like, she wrote so many literal battle scenes. And it's kind of hilarious to think of her even piecing that together. I'm like, okay, where is the, like, (laughs) war strategy brain coming through? (laughs) It's so insane. that's kind of epic of her like I think that's really cool I I mean but it makes sense when you think about her like amputating limbs at the age of 10 or whatever you know like she's seen some shit she has you know and so you know I feel I have mixed feelings about it I've only read excerpts from one of ours in a textbook but you know her work lives on in that like I think it's often talk about talked about whenever there's World War One novels involved um yeah and she got a Pulitzer Prize for that book like I guess that's one thing we didn't say up front is like Sam and I are kind of talking in response and sometimes a reaction to the main criticisms of her like Willa Cather was intensely commercially popular won the Mm -hmm. Pulitzer Prize like it was really only the like intellectual elite that had all of these issues with her like normal people in america were just buying her books and loving them like no it's true she she was very much the common man's you know and and that's what's weird too is is she never liked her books being seen as entertainment she always wanted them to be Mm -hmm. art but they were very entertaining to the common person yeah but she's she's definitely like the champion of the average joe i think Mm -hmm. um which again is so hilarious in the whole like oh you're not a marxist and, and she's not yeah. a Marxist, like she literally isn't, but like to assert that her not bending in that particular way made her not a, like a champion of working yeah. people is so misguided to me. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is, is I think in general, I have, you know, not to speak absolutely about things, but I have seen a lot of work, especially in the modernist age that that comes from a Marxist place that can be quite like um, patronizing of the Mm. working class. And Willa Cather took them so seriously. Like she took them more seriously than anyone else in the world. And she really thought that there was some philosophy and intelligence and the beauty of the eternal was in the mind of, you know, the average person. Mm -hmm. And I, I really appreciate that in her. Like, I think, 
you know, she didn't have these high-minded metropolitan ideas. Like she could really see like the philosopher and the farmer, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, she's such a romantic, right? So mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. the modern city is not inspiring to her because mm-hmm. it's like absent of the expanse and the idealism of the plains. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. Yeah. And she so- had to stay in the city. I feel like there's this like Christopher Hitchens quote where he says like to be a good writer you have to write as if, as though you're writing to your closest friend and only mm. your closest friend and I think she stayed out of Red Cloud so that she could write to Red Cloud like she had mm. to like leave it and write it stories of longing and kind of like keep it away from her so that her writing would be good I think you know mm. but- oh, oh I was gonna say about the the war stuff also I guess like another thing is that because she is so much more concerned with like the timeless stories and cycles of the universe and society, she was read as like having a, um, I don't want to say like pro-war necessarily, but definitely not mm-hmm. anti-war. And so this book that mm-hmm. Sam mentioned, one of ours, um, Hemingway in particular was like, not only like you have no right to speak of these things. <laughs> Secondly, mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this in the Akachella book, but I guess he like scene for scene was convinced that she had copied the ending from <laughs> the birth of a nation. The birth of a nation, which is crazy. <laughs> he was don't like, throw wow. her under the bus like that, dude. Yeah, she was pr- she was very anti-racist. She yeah. was, you know, <laughs> like, she- like yeah. Anyways, and then that also that she was like like had this rosy idea of war. And there's this quote that actually you know. Okay, so this is when the main character, Claude, named after her cousin, um, Mm -hmm. is he's in France. He's like, he's not about to die right now, but he's like hearing battle in the distance and and drifting off to sleep. And this was a passage Mm -hmm. that I guess Hemingway took a lot of issue with for the like rosy ideal of war thing. Okay. The intervals of the distant artillery fire grew shorter as if the big guns were tuning up, choking to get something out. Claude sat up in his bed and listened. The sound of the guns had from the first been pleasant to him, had given him a feeling of confidence and safety. Tonight he knew why. What they said was that men could still die for an idea and would burn all they had made to keep their dreams. So the idea that like a man could still die for an idea being this like valiant thing that legitimizes war, I think a lot of people had issue Mm -hmm. with. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just the age of anxiety mentality of between two wars type kind of depression mm-hmm. right people hated her for being kind of an optimist and yeah. a spiritualist almost you know definitely i can understand the criticism of her writing so soon after the war and never having fought in one because i think a lot of those books that were very popular at the time were written by people who actually experienced battle but i do think people have a right to write about things they've never experienced you know um And she clearly had, like, a really close connection to it somehow. You know, her cousin Mm -hmm. was someone that, you know, I think she really wanted to honor the memory of. She went to France to battlefields and really studied up on her Mm -hmm. knowledge on that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, and I guess, like, 100 years later, like, it holds up as a story, you know, whether or not mm -hmm. it's, like, historically faithful or was Mm -hmm. like inappropriate (laughs) kind of like just a faux pas at the time Mm -hmm. um her project was so much grander than the current moment i think yeah always Um, yeah she's outside of time um you know one thing you we kind of talked about in the doc was like okay if, if the subject of her novel is like the american frontier and land and expanse and as you said like kind of defensive retreat from east coast civilization um mm. but they're distinctly not cowboy novels 
Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Do you want to kind of talk about the difference there and yeah, those yeah. lineages? Yeah. Like frontier literature is typically separated into two categories, which is the literature of the farm and the prairie and the literature of the West and the cattle kingdoms. And mm. they tend to be about two very different things. So like the literature of the West and the cattle kingdoms are the traditional cowboy novels. They often have to do with cattle drives or criminals and the morality is a lot more black and white. There are these moments of action. They don't tend to be romances because there were not a lot of women in the West. And so there was not a lot of opportunity for romance to take place. There was always like this evil villain. There's always this brave cowboy. You know, there's always like the little brother that's like the kind of like heart and soul of the novel that gets killed by like some evil like outlaw or whatever. It's a very formulaic genre of literature and also very fantastical because very, very, very few people lived in the wild west it was like a really short period of time it was only like 30 or 40 years that Mm. the american wild west quote unquote was happening which is really interesting because it's really taken up such a huge part of the american psyche Mm -hmm. and then the literature of the prairie and like the later frontier deals a lot with people their tragedies their stories and their relationships with each other their hardships on the farm the way that they're carving out a life from themselves And I think that that distinction really lies in like the constancy of the landscape. So you're not really moving when you're on the farm, you're staying in one place, you're plowing the field, you're changing the land around you, but you're not moving away from it. And then the West, the land is like actively trying to kill you at all times. And so you're constantly moving, you're constantly going forward, anything can happen at any time. There could be a gang of outlaws like around any corner. Um, Mm -hmm. And there is this like huge distinction between the two, but they're still both frontier literature. It's two very different psyches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like prairie literature was written a lot of times, I think out of like, I mean, this is just me. I haven't read a lot of prairie literature. I've read a lot of Southwestern, like kind of wild West literature, not a lot of prairie stuff, but my perspective is that it was written a lot as like almost like a form of guilt of mm-hmm. leaving like a dying world. Like I think a lot of artists who left the farm or, watch their farm transform into a heavily industrialized kind of corporate hellscape or whatever, whatever a corporate hellscape looked like in the 1920s. (laughs) But, um, but it did, it existed. And like, and I think a lot of these writers felt guilt for leaving a dying world and then also kind of struggled with the idea, which is probably true that the world was dying. That world was dying because they had left it. You know, we still see this, it's called brain drain. You know, people leave rural areas, for more opportunity um and if you're really talented and can be a writer like why would you stay on the farm you know and the prairie literature i think deals a lot more with like emotion and psychology and spirit um and western like southwestern stuff i think it took a long time for that to get to a more psychological place and a more emotional place but once it did it became very very horrific it was mm. it's almost like horror adjacent like you totally. think blood meridian cormac mccarthy like that type of thing you know mm-hmm. um nature is seen as like pure evil a lot of times in these novels mm-hmm. and in prairie literature nature is seen as this sort of like benevolent or neutral kind of mother you know mm. the two just betray such different like almost opposing underlying values as well where like the cowboy mm-hmm. that's so like I mean, this is simplified, but like manifest destiny, mm-hmm. individual will, and like triumph over evil. Whereas the prairie literature you're describing is like at the mm-hmm. mercy of something, you know, like not mm-hmm. necessarily no agency. Like, 
Um, certainly Willa Cather didn't think that about herself or her protagonist, mm-hmm. but like the sense of like, in the end, something bigger than you is going to complete you, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. and complete and erase. It's mm-hmm. not about you beating the bad guys. It's just like, mm-hmm. this is a, a settlement of exile in some ways, you know, whether self-inflicted mm-hmm. or not. And like, I don't know, I keep saying ma- world mm-hmm. spins madly on, but that's really how I think about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and she talks, she's constantly talking about the wind. Willa Cather is in her work, you know, as this immovable force, nobody knows what moves it. There's no human intervention that can stop it. And despite that, you know, you're going to plow the field, you know, your dad's going to kill himself because his hogs died or, you know, um, you're going to cheat on your husband with like the local farm boy, you know, it's just like these little kind of vignettes of people's totally. lives. Cause that's very much how she writes. It's like little vignettes and kind of skipping around and mm-hmm. death to the arch- archbishop. It's a Southwestern novel, very traditional and very much like in that lineage of kind of narrative. Um, but she also uses that thing where it's just like little vignettes of people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. So she applies the prairie mentality, I think to the Southwest a bit, but prairie is very feminine you know, Wild West is very masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think historically, like literally, it was the prairie was much more kind to women. Yeah. So like, I think that's just their, you know, so that's how they're separated. Yeah. 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 When you were saying the like little stories of like, you know, life and death or hardship and whatever, like I'm even thinking of mm-hmm. in the end of My Antonia where the main protagonist the guy comes back and he sees Antonia this woman who he's like essentially been in love with his entire Mm -hmm. life and she's like this old mother and she's lost all of her teeth and he's like Mm -hmm. searching for he's like but it was still the same face like even that to Mm -hmm. me is such a like world spins madly on moment of like Mm -hmm. aging and grotesqueness and just like oh Mm -hmm. okay and now she's an old woman with hella kids and no teeth and like here we are again you know (laughs) Yeah, it's really beautiful. Like, if reading Willa Cather really does feel like sitting down with, like, an old man with a pipe and you just yeah. says shit to you and it's just, like, time doesn't stop for anybody. Like, do you know what I mean? And you're like, whoa, dude, like, you're so right. Like, it's you know, so like, galaxy I, brain. Like, I know, exactly. Like, I love it. Like, I think it's so cool. Like, totally. I feel like the best truths are, like, the most obvious ones. Those are mm-hmm. the most impactful ones, you know? Totally. And aging, I feel like, does kind of highlight that, which is why Willa Cather hated everybody under 40, I think, you know? <laughs> So, Um, I was going to ask you, like, where do you think prairie literature, where has that evolved? Or, like, what's the closest thing, even not literally writing about, like, that region Mm -hmm. of America, but what captures that spirit? That's a really tough question. Um, It's a very unique genre, but obviously, like, the eternal is, like, you know, its main subject, especially Mm -hmm. in Cather's work. That's a really tough question. Like, I'm not really sure. Um... I think in poetry, still, mm. even contemporary poetry, you can see similar mentalities applied. I think poetry is like where these like grand kind of galaxy brand ideas can really thrive and exist. Um, did you get any examples by chance? Okay, this, I like might have to edit this out because I don't even know mm-hmm. if I think it. And also I haven't even seen the whole thing. So I was really just mm-hmm. pulling it out of thin air. But I was thinking about Breaking Bad having a similar, um. just like where this desolate, 
poor settlement, basically. Yeah. Um, and like with this tragedy that's befallen us and all of society. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, no, no, that actually, so I've been obsessed with Albuquerque lately mm-hmm. and New Mexico in general. I went to Albuquerque over the summer and it was a horrifying experience. Like it was actually like haunted as fuck. Like, Wait, I actually we went stayed... there a few years ago and had like a really? terrifying time as well. Yeah. Really? I think it's just Albuquerque. Like I think, I think Albuquerque just, a, just has like- depressed place. Yeah. And like, it was like after driving for like nine hours and yeah, it was like 7 p.m. and I could not find a place to eat in the whole entire city. Me and my boyfriend were just like driving around in circles and we stayed the night at this like old Route 66 motel that was like really weird and janky. And like um, the phone rang at one o'clock in the morning and I was like, don't answer it. It's a scam. And like we told the front desk the next day and they were like, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. Like we traced that line and it belonged to the old hotel. Like it's not actually like a real phone line. And I was like, so what? Like, you know, like, yeah, Albuquerque is scary. It's really um, scary. Everywhere I went there, I was traveling with another friend and admittedly we had done like no research. We were just like, New Mexico looked gorgeous. Like, and we were like taking a bus from like there to Santa Fe. Like it was such a mess. But everywhere oh we God. went, people would like our Uber driver or like our waitress would be like, hey girls, like don't be out past dark. Like, you know, like I was like, okay, is something about to happen to me? Like, yeah, something about Al- Albuquerque is really strange. Uniquely that city, it's the largest city in New Mexico, which is crazy. And I'm like, how is this possible that like, yeah. it feels as scary here? Um, no shade to any Albuquerque listeners. <laughs> But, like, I was really, I don't know, it was, like, really haunted, yeah. which is cool, you know? The after dark thing, like, nothing is open after dark because I don't think they can be. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I feel like you guys are just perpetuating this terror. Like, open up. Like, everyone needs to open up. We need to put people on these streets after dark. Like, yeah. But Breaking Bad is very, like, end of the map. That's another thing about Willa Cather's, like, I feel like Nebraska feels very much like end of the map. I really mm-hmm. relate to this, being from Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. Texas. Um I brought my boyfriend out there for the first time a couple years ago and he was like, it really feels like the end of the map when I get here. Cause it's just like total desolation, emptiness between San Antonio and Corpus Christi for three and a half hours. And, mm. um, suddenly it's just like the ocean and like, there's wow. just a vastness. And that, that feeling is like very special to me. I feel like at New Mexico is very, that it's very like end of the map. Like where am I? I feel like I fell off the side of the earth and I'm in this like weird, like kind of limbo, you know? Totally. Um, it's very like one road in, one road out. Yeah, yeah. Very like poorly paved roads. I go two or three times a year, ever since I was like seven years old, mm-hmm. two or three times a year down I-10 on the southern route, which is like the, the lowest highway in America from Corpus Christi, Texas, or now Austin to Sonora driving. So I've been up and down there like probably like, like 40, 50 times. <laughs> so like, it just, it haunts me deeply. Like, yeah. um, I think it really shaped me as a person and like... I obviously have a totally different landscape being from the Pacific Northwest, but I share that same, Mm -hmm. that resonates, I guess. Like, and Mm -hmm. you know, that's much more about like just enormous mountains and then sea. Mm -hmm. It's not like, it's not desert. It's not flatness expanse, but, um, it definitely has an end of the map feeling like when you grow up there and you like look at the United States and you're like, wait, I'm over here. Like, yeah, it's going to take me six hours by plane to get anywhere. Um, and yeah. And just like the sheer scale of everything I think in the West, Mm -hmm. like as opposed to being in New York, like I'm always like, okay, what? That's a mountain. Like, you know, (laughs) um, and so obviously Texas has a totally different landscape, but I feel like it's, you know, the West in American psyche, like, is about spectacle of scale, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all related. Um, Oh, 
total topic shift, but mm-hmm. I was thinking about Willa Cather in comparison to Lana. Um, oh, whoa. As like, <laughs> go, go on. <laughs> yeah, as just like a figure who is like, number one, a stylist above all else, very concerned mm-hmm. with like, well, I think Willa Cather was less publicly like, oh, you don't understand me, whatever. But very like, my project is something that none of you are understanding. Yeah. And, you know, these criticisms are like low-minded material concerns. Like, And then mm-hmm. also as a figure who is intensely politicized and like claimed and rejected by both sides all of the time. Um, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's true. I mean, I do think Willa's, even though she's not so explicitly rejecting the interpretations of her, like she, she like literally prevented anyone from even interpreting her in the first place. So I feel like they really share that in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they both have this like weird sense of romance that like it's because I've always thought Lana like the romance that she's obsessed with has nothing to do with like human relationships. Like it's very much mm-hmm. like this like romance with like something grander and internal and both external. And mm-hmm. I think Willa Cather very much has that. Like I think there is another quote here. Um, Apparently, Willa Cather wrote, one realizes that human relationships are the tragic necessity of human life, that they can never be wholly satisfactory, that every ego is half the time greedily seeking them and half the time pulling away from them. Which I feel like is a very Lana mm-hmm. sense. Like, I feel like that could be a line in a Lana song. Totally. <laughs> you know, yeah. she was like, maybe if I was tested, let's like these debutantes. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. I think there's less melodrama with Willa Cather but they both Mm -hmm. are like kind of tragic and rosy at the same time Mm -hmm. and very American pie both of them very apple pie all American girls you know Mm -hmm. Um, real um wait I'm just trying to see if there's anything else I wanted to like specifically talk about I think we got through most of it um I liked your comparison to Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie. I also think of like Sarah Plain and Tall, which is like a book I read a lot when I was young. <laughs> um, like it's definitely like the training wheels to get into Willa Cather is to read Little House on the Prairie and Sarah yeah. Plain and Tall when you're a child. Did you um, read Little House on the Prairie? I well, I listened to the audiobook when oh, I was yeah. a child oh, on so road good. trips through the West. Yeah, it was so and then I watched the TV show. I don't mm-hmm. think I sat down and read it, but. Um, I felt similarly scared, especially as a kid, like trying to comprehend the landscape of the prairie. Um, and like the most Midwest I've gone is like not very Midwest. So like, I would love to go to Nebraska at some point because it's mm-hmm. really operated heavily in my own imagination, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Once you get into researching Willa Cather, like it makes you really want to go to Red Cloud, especially because it's like mm-hmm. the University of Nebraska still is like Okay, I don't want to get the exact legal term, terms wrong, but they like manage her estate and have like collect a bunch of her stuff. The town of Red Cloud, actually, Joan Acatella went to in the end of her book is like a little epilogue. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, this actually is like kind of like an amazing journey to take. Yeah. I thought that was really beautiful. And especially like, I think it's really emblematic of the boom and the bust of the West is like mm-hmm. Red Cloud boomed so much during you know the mid 20th century the early 20th century and grew twice and like it doubled in population um during Willa Cather's lifetime and then when she passed away it went back down to the population it was when she arrived and it's now like 1500 people or something and the only industry is Willa Cather you know and like 
that to me is very much, I think that's why like frontier literature got really dark in the later 20th century, like in the seventies and stuff. Like I think it got really dark because it just felt like this like slow and painful death of like, you know, this dream, you know? Totally. Um, I'm now thinking about like the past, I don't know what we want to say, five or so years of like reinterest in Appalachia and like literature and music coming out of there. And like, it seems like there, there's like this kind of collective impulse to like use that as the vehicle to talk about the opioid crisis. And, you know, it's like yeah. this kind of galvanizing space. So that feels similar. Yeah. Did you watch the new Hunger Games? No, I haven't. One of the main characters is like this like Appalachian like folk singer girl. It's like so weird. She's from like, not to be like a weird like Hunger Games lore like <laughs> no, enjoyer. I'm but um, I think like District 12 where Katniss is from is supposed to be like oh. South Carolina. I guess they're and, like, minors. Ad, like, they're yeah. minors, exactly. Yeah. And so she does this weird like kind of stomp clap like coal mining <laughs> jig. like And that's like what saves her in the end or whatever. Whoa, okay. Um, <laughs> so I do think like Appalachia is like big with Gen Z like suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know why. Yeah. And obviously yeah. like Southern literature is its own like kind of perennial interest. And, you know, that feels mm-hmm. like there's a self-sustaining just spirit there. Oh, yeah. Um, but I want to think more about like what is carrying the torch of the frontier that's not cowboy mm-hmm coded stuff like even I think of Lana is like that's still a more cowboy narrative because it's like her fleeing and like open road more type of thing yeah Yeah. no the road I think is the highways are the new kind of like cattle trails to me like I always see truckers as like the modern day equivalent of cowboys because they're just like these like harrowing journeys across the rugged landscape of America carrying this like load and Mm -hmm. you know they're just kind of living these like rough and tumble lives and like dodging lot lizards at every turn you totally. know it's, like, and like dark no witnesses lifestyle. just exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah and like there's definitely like some like weird outlaw like evil character and like like in in my like mental story of like the trucker universe there's like rules we'll never know that they are exactly engaging with <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but yeah so like highway stuff i think is very cowboy adjacent mm-hmm. and then modern stuff i think it is I don't know. I mean, like, Ethel Kane stuff is very prairie stuff, too. you know? But it's very, like, that's so big on TikTok right now is, like, Southern Gothic or mm-hmm. Midwestern like Gothic. Yeah. Yeah. But it is very, like, how you said, like, kind of, like, obsessed with, like, Appalachian magic and mystery, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then I'm even just thinking of, like, like the Dakotas as a different space. Like, all of the, wow. like, uh, I'm, like... I mean, this is this. I don't think this is like engaged in in the cultural moment at all. But like the Fargo gaze yeah. type stuff, wow. you know, where it's just like expand. But that's more cowboy too, you know. That's like yeah. a chase, you know. Yeah, I love that though. I forgot about Fargo, but that <laughs> yeah, is so. Why. Please don't be. Thinking I love about that it. movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. I think it's awesome. <laughs> like it's like pregnant cop. Like I think that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Oh, so cool. Um, Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, no, I think that's it. Um, I'm super happy that I was able to come on to Stargirl. Like, I love this podcast so much, like I said. Um, I'm so glad that you were up to talk about her. I don't even know how I knew that you liked her. You must have mentioned her at some point, but... 
I was really surprised. I thought you just like assumed that I liked her. I like, was or like, maybe Whoa. I did Wait. just like project onto you like an interest in frontier literature. Well, I did want to ask you like, how did you get into Willa Cather? I kept meaning to ask you that. So I actually got into her through that Joan Acatella book. Like, obviously I, I knew wow. who she was and I was an English major and yet I never read oh. her until grad school. And so, yeah, at the time, I think the anxiety that, or the issue that, Joan Acatella is expressing in that again which is that like critics are using artists as political tools rather than just like looking at their style basically um Mm -hmm. that was something that I was feeling a lot like looking around (laughs) like that that was an issue with criticism Mm -hmm. that I thought was happening currently and so but I hadn't been able to articulate it so I was first just drawn to Joan Acatella's characterization of that phenomenon and then I was like, also, this sounds like a really cool lady. Like, this chick is weird as fuck. Like, I need to get into it. Um, And then, yeah, I think what kept me into it was truly just, like, the beauty of her descriptions. Um, Mm -hmm. It just makes me feel so peaceful. And, like, this doesn't literally happen, but... I feel like I have like a single tear running down my face, you know, it's like very moving, but not in a like loud emotional way. Um, Yeah. So I think, yeah, she just like makes me feel really connected to the world and like at peace with it at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I just, I guess I like her influence on me (laughs) ultimately. That's so cool. I totally agree. Um, She is like, I feel like reading her is meditative. I think. Yes recommend to all star girl listeners like i found her in a period of like very neurotic anxiety ridden moments and she really helped me it's a very therapeutic reading Mm -hmm. i'm surprised Mm -hmm. that phrasing didn't come up yet but she's like anti-neurotic yeah it's really crazy how because i think she probably was neurotic as a person (laughs) but (laughs) she hit it super well i think it was probably just therapeutic for her to write too because, yeah, there's, like, such a, also duality within her, which is very, like, her struggling with male and female. Like, I think there's just a war happening inside her between two opposing forces. And she, yeah. in her art, was triumphant. The good was triumphant, but maybe in her personal life, not so much, you know? Um, yeah. Oh, well, I bow to her. Thank you, Willa Cather. <laughs> yeah, shout out, shout out to Willa Cather. We love you. <laughs> cool. Okay, well, thank you so much, Sam. This was yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, Thank you so much again. Um, Love this podcast. It was an honor. All right. Well, happy Saturday. Happy Three Kings Day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) Okay. To you as well. Yeah. Enjoy your weekend, dude. All right. Bye. Bye.